The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would stir up within us by your Holy Spirit a holy longing, a divine discontent with the way things are, and a mighty hunger and thirst for you and and the way you will make things be. Father, we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who taught us to ask and in asking to rest. Amen. This is Advent, and ordinarily Advent is uh, four Sundays. Uh, Rob has done some uh, extension, and we've been celebrating it for, what, seven weeks now? Um, In a sense, I've thought that, you know, really the There are only two seasons, and they're simultaneous, Easter and Advent, Uh, the resurrection of Christ and 
all that that represents for our justification and then the holy anticipation of Jesus' return. Um, but what does all of that mean? I'm going to be bold and to say that for many of us, if we were honest, we'd say that heaven is a dull concept. For many, it's white light. That's all they can imagine. For others, it's angels on clouds. And what's that all about? You know, for all our fear of death, for all our unhappiness with the way things are, it's, it's you know, we, we read about eternal life, but I think in many respects, it's rationally impossible to imagine eternity. Our brains can't wrap around it. What does it mean, something that goes on and on and on without end? And certainly to spend forever playing harps and singing holy, 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 for many has very little appeal. So I get all of that. The scriptures try to open up to us a picture of what heaven or eternity looks like, what life in the presence of God will look like. But like with many things, these are approximations. Um, God tries to communicate to us things known to him using terms and pictures that are known to us. Sometimes the glory of it, the beauty of it, the gravity of it, the joy of it, expressed in terms like eternity and weight and mansions and gold, is really hard for us to wrap our, our minds around. But... This imagery is meant to communicate at least one thing, that the reality is far grander, far more spectacular, and in the end, far more satisfying to our deepest and grandest desires than we can even imagine. So in the text before us, the familiar images are here, right? Images we've been looking at as we've worked our way through this book, the throne, is there, the 24 elders gather around it, are there, the voices like thunder and water, these are things that we've encountered before, but something new is here, something new that makes this particularly special. <laughs> There's a party. It's a party celebrating the most joyful of occasions. We all love a wedding, and not just the wedding, right? We love the wedding reception, where people relax. No one's really worried anymore about whether the best man is going to drop the ring into the tall grass on the outdoor wedding, which I've seen happen. You know? It's a party. There's a celebration. There's a relaxation. There's a joy. There's a happiness. There's an intimacy. There's a comfort. Huh. And so the image given to us here is, that's what heaven is. It really is a party. God is leading us in this life into a grand, celebratory, secure, and intimate party, and we really, really need to learn this and hang on to it. In a recent Atlantic essay, David Brooks Brook says he's been obsessed for some time over two questions. Why are Americans so mad? But also, why are Americans so sad? He references rising rates of depression and depths, deaths of despair. He notes that the percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased fourfold since 1990. He points out that more than half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. And he 
references a study that says the percentage of high school students who report, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness shot up from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. And if you weren't sad when you came in, you are now. The question, though, really for many of us is why are we so sad? Why does it feel like there's a darkness that haunts us? Why is there a cloud that follows us? And I can't answer that question. You can. You stare into your own darkness, your own puzzlement, your own confusion. And certainly, neither, I cannot fix that sadness, nor do I want to diminish the reality of your feelings or expect that I have some kind of magic bullet that will make it go away. But, but I do think we're meant to peer into the end of all things. We are meant to peer into a future. We are meant to hold on to a promise. And the realization and the understanding that this sadness we experience is just for a time. That God has destined you, Christian, for a joyful end. Enjoying an intimate and eternal feast. And since that is your destiny, since that is what lies out there, that on this you can build a bit of hope as you trudge through a world that we often don't really understand. It really is, really is about the party it really is about the feast. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. But first, let's get clear. This end is a joyful end. The gracious feast is a joyful end. Now, Revelation here is moving towards its close. Many of the images in the book of Revelation that we have looked at, we've noted cover a period, time period from the time of Jesus' first advent to the time of his second advent. And the, the visions that are given to John are meant to remind us that these are the realities of the state and situation of the church between these times. But as we get closer to the end of the book, more and more of the focus now is shifting towards this end, this terminal point, the, the, you know, away from the ongoing realities of the church's pilgrimage to the end of that pilgrimage. And that's where the attention in this text lies. Now, verse 1, after this, I heard what seemed to be... By the way, when you see things in Revelation like after this, this is John's way of saying, this is the next vision I saw. It is not necessarily his way of saying, I am looking into the future and there's this historical thing that comes next. Now, this is the next vision he saw. That's all it's saying. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, that means praise the Lord, by the way. There's a praise going on. John is shown in this, this vision here, this immense excitement uh, that is welling up in heaven itself over and over again. Look at verse 3. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. And the chorus is joined by others. Look at verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Uh, you know, the worship is, it, it appears to be antiphonal. That means these people say something and these people respond in other words. Look at verse 5. Um, <clears throat> and from the throne, so you know, the, the 24 elders and the living creatures said hallelujah. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. And then verse 6. And from the throne... Came, oh, I'm sorry, verse 6. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord 
our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the noise, the celebration, the joy of heaven. And by the way, if you recognize those last words, you may recognize it uh, more, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, it's more recognizable if you put it in the King James. Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. You've heard that before. You've heard it in Handel's Messiah. And if you've seen a performance of Handel's Messiah and everybody stands up and this immense choir and orchestra is singing hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, it is spectacular. It is moving. It will often bring tears. And it does not hold a candle to what John is witnessing here. He heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters. He can't number it. The mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah. Now, imagine yourself walking into this scene. This has been opened up before you. There's this thunderous word of praise, this noise, this excitement. What would your question be? What has started this? What's the cause of this? What is being celebrated? What spark set this ablaze? Now, you might perceive, okay, it, clearly this is worship of God. Hallelujah means that. But why? What particularly about God has this event spawned? Uh, what, what has spawned this event? Now, again, go back to verses 1 and 2. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And then in verse 3, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now we touched upon this last week, what that event was. But what, what, what they're saying, what, is, what John is seeing here and what the explanation being given to him is that everything that stood in opposition to God has been judged and overthrown. Those things, those systems, those impulses that stand in opposition to him have been destroyed, have been conquered, have been judged. All right, so far so good, but that's only the surface reason for the celebration. Because the true cause of the celebration is what that judgment allows to happen. The overthrow of the opposition has opened the door for the true end of all things. Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Judgment on the wickedness of the earth opens up access to the pure unadulterated, unfiltered enjoyment of the presence of God. The terminal point, the direction in which our lives as the church is heading is to be in such an intimate relationship with Christ. Christ and his church are here wed. And everything that is being celebrated here is pointed in that direction. This wedding of the lamb and his church, this celebration of the marriage of uh, of, of the consummation of that for which you and I were created. Uh, if you were to, if I were to ask you what is the chief end of man, most of you would be able to respond, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the enjoyment of him forever. The blessed eternity of being in the presence of God, having all that we were created for completely and totally fulfilled and experienced. The judgment of the sin of the world opens up the enjoyment of God as we were meant to have it. And this eternal enjoyment of God is represented as a celebratory feast 
the party that follows a wedding. It's a wedding reception. And with all the intimacy and, and excitement and the joy and the good and the hope and the beauty, that's what's here. That's the image that's given to us. And this wedding feast, no doubt, was rich, where all that could be eaten, all that we would desire would be fulfilled, and by the way, without concern for allergies, for reactions, or calories. But the real joy is the presence of the Lamb. All hurdles to our relationship with Him, to our relationship with Jesus have been removed, whether it is your, your personal doubts, your knowledge of your sin, uh, your conflict with others, your uncertainty, your, 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 your mental confusion, whatever it is, it's gone. The wedding has come. And you're at peace. Life is heading towards that celebration, toward the dancing, the singing, the friendship, the relaxation that is the marriage supper. And all you who love Christ, all you who are loved by him, that's where life is heading. And it's heading that way because that is God's design. It is God's purpose. The gracious feast for which we long and to which we are heading is a divine provision. The party is thrown by God. Look at verse 7 again. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, the very fact that there is a bride present at this wedding is God's work. God has had to rescue his bride for this marriage to happen. For the lamb and his bride, the church, to be brought into this permanent, enduring, joyful, secure, and intimate relationship meant first that the bride had to be rescued from her captivity. To use the language of Scripture, this bride, God's elect, the church needed redemption. She needed to be bought back from her captivity to sin. She needed propitiation, a big word, but it meant that the wrath of God against her, the holy wrath of God against her because of her sin, needed to be absorbed, turned away, deflected, taken away. She needed reconciliation, an unbridgeable gulf laid between the holy God and his sinful people that desperately needed closing. Those things had to happen, or this wedding wasn't going to take place. And the fact that there is this marriage of the Lamb is the point of celebration because those dead and their sins are there. Those who are the enemies of God are there. Those of us, all of us who sin, were a scarlet, are there. This is the marriage of the Lamb. And we are there because the Lamb has granted us favor. Look at verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself. It's not because of our own merit. It's not because of our own clothing. But Christ has clothed us with his clothing, with his own righteous deeds, with his own character. Now remember also what the lamb looked like. We use the, you know, the lamb as we refer to him in chapter 19 is an abbreviated uh, language. Look, in verse 6 of Revelation 5, we saw this picture earlier between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 
John the Baptist tells us who this lamb is and why it was slain as he opens up his eyes and looks and saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of whom we read in Revelation 5 that alone was worthy to open the seal. Where is it? Verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed or redeemed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, as Elizabeth pointed out to us. This is the lamb who had to die in order to provide the, 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 the opportunity for we who are the church to attend. This is not something that we simply march into. This is something for which we have been set free to enjoy. Church, this is the affection with which Christ has come to you, that he might wed you in this intimate relationship required that he die. Let's not forget that to be the bride of Christ is a gift that has been granted to us. But it's been granted to us in a remarkably generous and diverse way. The gracious feast is unbelievably generous. You're invited. You know, we look at this in Revelation 19, we realize this is no low-budget film with a few actors. This is an epic with casts of thousands. No, with an innumerable cast. And again, verse 1, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Verse 6, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude Multitude, of course, is a relative term. How big is a multitude? Pretty big, if the previous texts are any indication. In Revelation 5, where we uh, referenced before in verse 11, John looks and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And that was not the text I wanted to read, but... Um, there were a lot of angels, there were a lot of people as well. Why can I say that? Well, that was the vision that, um, that Abraham was given, right? Back in Revelation 15, and God is making his promise to Abraham, his covenantal promise. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is no small number, it is uncountable. <laughs> and it's important to remember this because sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking that those who actually make it to heaven are some small elite group, sort of like the you know, Navy SEALs of the Christian life. There are those who make it, but most of us won't make it. And that's a lie. There are so many that none could count them. But it's not just the numbers that should encourage us. It's the diversity. You who are of earth will be joining around this table, this marriage supper, the 24 elders, the four living creature, the entire host of heaven. But more importantly, look at verse 5. Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. I hope that's you, right? You who fear Him, you who honor Him, you who are depending on Christ, 
You are the ones who fear him. You are the ones who are his servants. But notice it says, small and great. Small and great. The vast diversity we have seen that we see here is the vast diversity we see throughout Scripture. It is King David, yeah, but also the cripple Mephibosheth. There was the rich and powerful Nicodemus, sure, but there's also the thief on the cross who was pleading for his life with his last drop of blood. There was the gentle and poor Mary and Joseph, as well as the aristocratic, such as Lydia in Philippi, small and great, you know, wealthy and poor, powerful and marginal, native and immigrant, Republican, Democrat, white, black, approved by the world, rejected by the world, more importantly, approved by us and disapproved by us. God in his diversity, diversity brings to this table his servants who fear him. Not those who are perfect, not those who have a grand resume, not those who produce a lot, not those who accomplish a lot, but those who bow before God and say, I need help, please save me. You know, we create all kinds of metrics by which we judge ourselves unacceptable to God. And I'm so grateful that God does not create those metrics. His metrics are absolute perfection, and he has clothed you with the perfections of Christ, and so you're in. doesn't matter how insignificant you are or think you are. No, how, it doesn't matter how insignificant the world makes you feel if you are holding on to Jesus. You have a place at this table. Sure, you're going to be surprised by others who are around that table. It will shock us. He's here, she's here, but what I want, do not want to shock you is that you're there. This is the grace of Christ to you. This gracious feast is the joyful end. It is a divine provision. It's unbelievably diverse, and it is a worthy hope. This is worth waiting for. We'll look at verse 9. The, the party is certain. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is certain, and yet it certainly has not yet occurred. John is being shown, as, we, as, as, as the angel tells him in verse 1 of chapter 1, about the things that must soon take place. The party here was future to John. It was, it's still future to us. And for those of us caught up in the hardness of living by the things that lead to stress and sadness, this realization can be frustrating. I like my life when it chugs along smoothly and predictably, but life has a way of frustrating that. And when the smoothness for us becomes pain and anxiety and fear, I don't know about you, but I want it to all be over. I want things to come to a quick resolution, and those are the times when I say, come, Lord Jesus. But therein lies the frustration, right? He hasn't come. These promises, this vision is 2,000 years old. It has yet to come about. And when I want Jesus to come and fix everything quickly, it may not happen quickly. But it's a promise. And it's a promise for which we wait with eagerness, with what I call a holy kind of impatience. Let's suppose you're a big fan of an upcoming movie. Let's say it's going to come out in July. 
You're a big fan, I'm not. But we're friends, so we're both going to go. You're enthralled by it. I'm okay. So I'm very calm. I'm very self-controlled. I'm reserved about it. I'm stoic. For all appearances, I'm waiting very patiently. <laughs> but what that patience is masking is indifference. On the other hand, there's you. You're antsy. You're talking about it all the time. You're checking the internet to see if there's been any changes. You're looking all over the place to see if they moved it up. Have they not moved it up? You're counting the days. You talk about it all the time. You wake at night thinking about it, and you catch yourself daydreaming about it. As it gets closer, your heart rate increases. You begin to pace. You start marking the days off your calendar. You do not look very patient, but you are waiting properly. One cannot be indifferent about the joy of a wedding feast. To desire something, even over a long period of time, to so long for a thing that we just can't wait that we know we must, is to hunger and thirst for something that we know is real and it's coming. Someone may come and tell me that, well, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. That never helps me very much because for me, a thousand years is like a thousand years. <laughs> the feast will come, but the psalmist give us permission to be a little bit impatient and cry out, how long, O Lord? To wait for what, we are for what we desire in the midst of what we endure is to wait with a type of agony that arises from a strong desire. And it's a desire not only to escape our misery, but a desire to be with the bridegroom. And your strong desire, your urge to say, come, Lord Jesus, is a desire that will not be disappointed. For blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, you remember the third point? You're invited. The end for which we wait is about a party. It's God's party. It's a diverse party. But it's a party worth waiting for. I want to tell you about a book that is called Oh Darling. Nobody's ever heard of this book. It's written by a friend of mine. Self-published. My friend Jim's a journalist, lives in Bradenton. He served in the army in Vietnam in the 1960s. There, he was Twitterpated, if you've ever watched Bambi, by a young Vietnamese girl named Kim. He wanted to marry her, but he couldn't just marry her. There were hurdles that had to be hurdled and red tape that had to be cut. In fact, he was first told that to marry her would be impossible because he was being sent back home. His tour was over. He was undeterred. He did all that he could. He made every sacrifice possible. It required him to, when he got back to the States, to ask the government to send him back to Vietnam in 1969. It is not a time when anyone wanted to be sent back to Vietnam. But he wanted to pursue this woman. And he told this woman he would be back. He said, no, that I'm coming back. I'm really not making any of this up. I'm quoting him. Jim reports in his book, my promise to return probably sounded hollow to anyone in Sock Train who heard about it. Oh, man, how many times do we look at the promises of God and they sound hollow because we really don't believe they're going to happen? How many times, he writes, 
Have girlfriends been jilted? Kim's Vietnamese friends and the American GIs all told her that I would never be back. (laughs) You know, it's Christmas. Can we remember that this is the whole reason Jesus came to earth and was born in a stable? Was to come and get his bride? Jim says, despite the dangers, I had no hesitation about returning to a place that so many tried to avoid. I was pursuing the woman I love. This is you, people of God. Those could be the words of Jesus. He came pursuing his bride, the people he loved before the foundation of the world. Well, on the day of the wedding, it finally came in Vietnam. Kim was being picked up by a friend and, with, and, and, and the cake. So she, the bride, the cake, and the friend were in a car. That car was stopped by the police in Saigon, and it was impounded. They didn't have cell phones. In fact, there was no phone where Kim was staying. Everyone was gathered for the wedding. The bridegroom was there. The bride never showed up. She was in captivity. For Kim, the disappointment was so great that to this day, she has a hard time talking about it. But the bridegroom did not give up. They rescheduled the wedding for three days later, and this time, to ensure that it would happen, Jim went to Kim, picked her up, and drove her to the place of the wedding. As he writes it, I would be a one-man rescue team. So Jim, persistent and unrelenting, pursued and secured his bride, and their party began and has continued for over 50 years. And even though we cannot really understand what it means to say this, ours will last for eternity. Thank you, Father, for being a God who pursues, for a God who loves, who loves rich and poor, great and small. Thank you, Father, for never giving up on your people. And Father, help us now to anticipate this great day in which everything will be made right. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.